and had a, had a good weekend. Thanksgiving's my favorite holiday. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I, I just love Thanksgiving and just a wonderful weekend. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 3, Genesis 3. We are taking a break from 1 Corinthians, as I said before, and we are going to do a series of Advent sermons, but before I, I get there, I wanted to just, uh, by way of quick explanation, um, just say a couple things about pastoral philosophy, if I could. If you notice that I go through books of the Bible, there's a reason for that. And philosophically, the reason is that God works through his word, right? And so therefore, my job as a pastor is to teach the word. And I, I teach the word of God. The reformers had a Latin phrase called lectio continua, which means to go sequentially through the books of the Bible. And what that does is it gives you the whole counsel of God. And it, it allows me not to go to my favorite passages and to all my hobby horses. And so my job is to teach. Now, the, the great thing about that is that when you as a church hear God's word being taught, the Holy Spirit uses that in your heart to make you more like Christ. And um, there is a, a kind of a philosophy of ministry that says that Sunday morning is the time where we come in and we, we, uh, we work on people's emotions and we get people's emotions up. And the problem with that is that emotions are driven by knowledge. Emotions are driven by what you know and what you desire. And so any church who puts a priority over emotions, or puts emotions a priority over knowledge and, and sound teaching, is going to take the chance of, of being derailed. Because you have people coming in, they hear a feel-good message, or they get their emotional feel, feel, and they walk out, and they have no substance to face them throughout the week when difficulties come and when they need to think through things. And so uh, the, the Bible has charged me with two things. One is to teach. This is what God has, has taught me, teach and preach, or told me to do. And number two, to pray. And that was my second point, and then we're going to get into our passage, is um, my one of my main responsibilities, other than studying and, and teaching and preaching, is to pray for you as a church. And it's, um, I do pray, by the way, for knee surgeries and, and all those other things, but that's not why God asked me to be devoted to pray. I'm devoted to prayer because all the teaching in the world does nothing unless the Holy Spirit takes it and works in people's hearts. In Paul, over and over and over prayed that, that people would be filled with the knowledge so that they become more holy. They do his will and he gets glorified. And it's a whole chain. And without prayer, ministry is, is, is basically powerless. And so that is, that is why we do what we do at Providence Bible Church. I want to just explain to you why that is. Do When you walk in here, if you've been in God's word all week and God... Um, and, and you're learning about God, the, the emotions are just going to come out from that knowledge. And we're not going to whip up your emotions here because 
knowledge precedes or drives, I'm sorry, knowledge drives emotions. For example, Thanksgiving Day, if I'd taken the time to watch football, uh, knowledge that day would have driven my emotions which way? Okay, yeah, yeah. Go ahead and rub it in, that's fine. I didn't watch the game, I didn't really care, but uh, you see what I'm saying, right? With that, we're going to start in Genesis chapter number three, a series of Advent sermons, and they're all going to be the Advent in the Old Testament. So we're going to go through four Old Testament truths, Old, Old Testament passages, driving us towards the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when you begin a Christmas sermon, Christmas, if you think about it, is about all, the grand sweep of space and time and eternity. The, the storyline of the Bible has been summed up various ways, but basically, the storyline of the Bible, they all end up in the same way. No matter if they have four or seven or 11 categories, it's creation, curse, redemption, consummation, right? That's, that's the storyline of the whole Bible. Four chapters have perfection. The first two and the last two, and in, in between is about the curse and redemption, And so, in order to appreciate Christmas, we must first see the curse. And that's what we're going to look at today. Think about creation. You've read Genesis 1 and 2, right? God's creation was good. The summary of every day of creation was that it was good. Light was good in chapter 1, verse 4. Land and sea were good in verse number 10. The vegetation and the trees were good in verse number 12. The sun, moon, and stars were good in verse number um, 18. The created animals of the sky and the seas were good in in verse number 21. Uh, The summary statement, oh, and uh, the beasts of the earth in verse number 25 were all good. But the summary statement found in verse number 31 of Genesis 1 says this, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. This is the creation a man and woman lived in. Absolute perfection. They were perfect. They perfectly reflected the character of God. Their mental capacity was perfect. Wouldn't that be nice? That was kind of weak. (laughs) Their health was perfect. Wouldn't that be nice? Perfect health. No aches and pains. No lower back pains. Uh, they, they had need of nothing. In a sense, they were in heaven. And then we come to chapter number three, and we read about the fall and the curse. And we're going to read that together. If you'll stand with me, we'll begin in verse number one of chapter number three. I plan to focus on verse 15, but we're going to read 19 verses here. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree, a fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called uh, to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave, uh, who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. In your belly shall you go, and the dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Let me stop right there. The word offspring in the ESV, a lot of your translations probably say seed. The literal uh, word in Hebrew is seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and how that knowledge of you and your word brings us to hope. And Lord, we're we're looking at a very serious subject today, the, the curse of man and the curse of all the earth of creation. Uh, because of the fall of man. But Lord, it's so instructive for us to see this and see the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you will instill in us the exceeding sinfulness of sin and and our hopelessness without Christ and instill in us, Lord, how, um, how glorious and wonderful your plan of salvation and how much glory Christ deserves to have because of what he has done. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you so much. About 2020 years ago, a baby boy was born in Bethlehem, an obscure village on the very edge of the Roman Empire. In the passage that we just read today, uh, his birth was alluded to. One, One prominent word in that narrative that we just read towards the end of it is the word curse. It occurs several times. All creation is cursed. Uh, The beasts are cursed. The livestock are cursed. The ground is cursed. Man and woman are cursed. But especially, the serpent was cursed. The serpent was cursed above all other creatures. 
Notice specifically the curse that was placed upon the serpent. Verse number 14, look at that with me together. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, normal people don't like snakes, okay? I don't mean anything by it if you happen to like snakes. I'm just saying, okay? And notice the last phrase of verse number 15. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the language of this verse was picked up in the last chapter of Romans. And in Romans number, uh, chapter number 16, in verse number 20, and Paul said this to the Romans. Listen to the language of Genesis 3. He said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, what's interesting is the early church picked up on that little part of Romans chapter 16, verse number 20, and it soon, they tagged Genesis 3.15 that we just read, the proto-evangelium or proto-evangelion, however you want to say it. There's two different ways that you can say it, anglicized or, or Latinized. The proto-evangelium, which simply means what? The first gospel. The first gospel is found in Genesis 3.15. And Christmas, uh, above all else, is about salvation. In our text today, we're going to see four things about our salvation that are very important to us. Four truths about our salvation. Number one, salvation begins with a curse. Now, that sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? Salvation begins with a curse, except that you can't have salvation unless you have the lack of it. And the lack of salvation is a curse. I want you to notice the dialogue between God and Adam as, as he's walking through it. Now, remember in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and then God came to walk with them in the cool of the day. And what he did in his dialogue is he exhibited kindness to Adam and Eve because he didn't just hit them right off. That's, I'm a direct person. That's, that's my nature. And I'm, I'm still 52 years old. I'm still learning to, to be less direct and to be a little bit, um, anyway, it doesn't matter. But what did God do? He asked him a series of questions. First of all, he says, where are you? Now, he's omniscient. He knew exactly where they were, didn't he? And then, and then he asked this question. He said, who told you that you were naked? Now, have you really ever thought about that question? Does anybody ever have to tell you that you're naked? To me, that was, that was a really strange question. Who told you that you were naked? Um, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And he's asking Adam these questions just like a parent asks a child questions. You know, Junior's got chocolate cake icing smeared on his face, and he, he says, and the parent says, did you eat part of the chocolate cake that I told you not to? Now, why, did, why does the parent ask that question? The parent asks that question in hope that the child will confess the truth and repent, right? 
And that's what God is doing here to Adam and Eve. But instead, they do exactly what we like to do. Blame everybody else. You know, God, Adam blames his wife. Eve blames the serpent. And and we, we do the same thing, don't we? And so he asked Adam and Eve questions. But did you notice that to the serpent, there are only curses? Have you noticed that? No questions for the serpent, only curses. Why is that? Well, the answer is that the serpent, we know from Romans chapter number 16, was embodied by Satan himself. And so there's no chance for repentance. While there's a chance for Adam and Eve to repent, there's no chance for repentance of the serpent. And so he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. Everything that God says from Genesis 3, 14 through 19 is judgment. You, you look through there and you see judgment on Adam, judgment on Eve, judgment on the earth, and it's just and it's fair, and it's for rebellion and wickedness and evil. And notice an interesting feature about the language as we go through the curse. Notice that Eve is cursed and the serpent is cursed, but what's, what does he say to Adam? He says, the ground is cursed. The ground is cursed. Now, now there were, Adam and Eve obviously were farmers. And I, I read a commentator this week, I laughed about this. He said this, could you imagine farmers for the next 900 years looking at Adam and saying, this is all your fault? Cursed is the ground because of you. That wouldn't be a way, that wouldn't be a nice way to live down your reputation, would it? But even in the curse, there is a blessing and a promise. And there's just a kernel, just a small kernel of future blessing in verse number 15, where he says, Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise your heel. And we think about the creation narrative. It is amazing how quickly things went from perfection to curse, you know? I mean, it just happened so very quickly. Don't we live in a land of the curse? We do. We see it everywhere. Health. You have health insurance. We have doctors if you're a doctor here, no offense, but you're only here because we're cursed, right? Um, death colors everything about our lives, doesn't it? This is the time of year when you see the dead deer and the dead raccoons and everything else laying by the side of the road. The ground is cursed. Natural disasters occur. Relationships are cursed. We, we hide from one another and then and then we doubt one another. Even our closest of friends, we will throw a doubt in there. And in and of ourselves, we cannot become uncursed. We try. We try really hard to become uncursed, whether it's, it's through reforming our behavior or going to see a counselor or trying to create the perfect world. And one thing is for sure, Every solution that man comes up with results in what? Another set of problems. You ever notice that? 
Every solution brings up a new set of problems. And so we need a solution outside of ourselves. And Paul said that the solution that's outside of ourselves is Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter number 8, I can understand why he says this. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. There it is. All creation is in bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the, in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who gave the first fruits of the Spirit, we uh, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. One day Christ will come back. And when he comes back, the whole earth will be remade back into the perfection of Eden. Our bodies will be, we will receive our resurrected bodies and they will be made perfect and there'll be no more groaning. There'll be no more inner longings because what we have been hoping for, what we have been groaning for will be actualized right here at the coming of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And so <clears throat> salvation <clears throat> begins with a curse Secondly, salvation begins with God warring on our behalf. In this verse, verse number 15 of Genesis chapter number 3, God is announcing war on the serpent, on Satan. He tells Satan that he is going to war on the behalf of man. Yes, Satan is going to do harm to the woman, into her offspring, but ultimately, God wins. Amen? And so really, much of the Bible narrative chronicles the battle between two different offspring, seed, the Bible uses. So think about your, your Bible for just a minute, Genesis 3.15. What happens in the next chapter? The next chapter, Satan immediately tries to win the war. Cain and Abel offer up offerings to the Lord. Abel's is accepted. Cain's is rejected. The Lord comes to, um, to Cain and says, Satan is knocking at your door. And he let Satan in and he killed his brother. Satan's plan, Satan seeing that Abel was righteous, was trying to kill off the line of the offspring of the one who was going to crush his head. And so that's chapter number four. But eventually, Adam and Eve conceive Seth, who is in the lineage then of the Satan crusher. The serpent crusher, I'm sorry. And the war rages on and on for centuries. Later on, Pharaoh wages war against the children of, of Israel and satanically inspired, he attempts to stamp out the seed by destroying all baby boys. Satan realizes that the one who's gonna save Israel hasn't been born and so he inspires Pharaoh that way. But God saved Moses in a little 
ark. Did you know that word basket is the word ark? Fascinating. God saves Moses in an ark and he delivers Israel out of bondage. Years and years later, uh, God promised David that he would build him a kingdom that lasts for all of eternity. And yet what did David do? David spent the majority of the first part of his life running for his life, didn't he? Because Satan was trying to stamp out the line of the offspring, the serpent crusher. Eventually, the war went, well, one more. Haman, inspired by Satan in the, in the book of Esther, tried to stamp out all Israel. So Satan's plan was for all Jews to be destroyed. That way there would be no chance for humanity to be redeemed. And then that didn't work. And so in, in Bethlehem, years, centuries later, there's uh, Herod the Great, who in a, in a moment tried to have all the boys born in Bethlehem killed. And yet God had already saved Jesus Christ. And in the moment of his greatest wickedness, evil Satan only ensured his own defeat when Satan inspired mankind to put Jesus Christ on the cross. The war has been going on, but God has won. At the moment when Jesus died and was resurrected, the battle, the war was won, and Satan is a defeated foe. And so salvation begins with God warring on our behalf. Isn't that a blessing to know? Man, what a blessing. But there's a third truth about our salvation that we need to see, and that is this. Salvation begins with a woman bearing a child. Eve's salvation is in her childbearing. Now, this is not the way that you think. What I'm not saying is that women need to have a bunch of babies, right? The truth of the matter is that salvation comes through the birth of the child of promise, through children of promise. God tells Eve, between your offspring and her, I'm sorry, God tells Satan, between your offspring and her offspring, talking about Eve's. And offspring is very important in Genesis. It's literally the word seed. Do you know how many times that word is used in Genesis? 41 times. There, there are genealogy after genealogy after genealogy. I wish I had time to explain what goes on in there. Very fascinating. But the book of Genesis, if I could sum it up, one of the, one of the ways that we could sum it up is a contest between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That's the contest going on in Genesis. I already alluded to this, but you remember Cain killed Abel? Cain was the first murderer trying to stamp out the line. Guess what happened to Cain's line? You get to, to Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, and he has a descendant named Lamech. And Lamech brags about being a murderer par excellence. Read it. See what he says. He says, Cain murdered, but I'm basically what he says is, I'm a murderer extraordinaire. That's Cain's line. And then Seth's 
lineage, Seth, the, the child of promise, his, his lineage becomes the focus of the blessing, while all the lines of Cain and Cain's siblings, by the way, become more and more and more evil, so much so that by the time you get to Genesis chapter number six, there's only one righteous man left on the face of the earth, and his name is Noah. And God decides to wipe all mankind off the face of the earth, save Noah. We find at the end of Noah's life in chapter number nine, a very interesting uh, phenomena. God makes a promise, listen, to you and your offspring, your seed, your offspring. And then the, the line of promise begins to narrow in, in the book of Genesis, and you get down to Abraham. And Abraham, in chapter number 12, in chapter number 15, in chapter number 17, God makes a promise to Abraham and his offspring. And Abraham is simply just a sojourner, and many times his life is, is in precarious danger as well, between famine and raiders and different things like this. And it continues through the rest of the Old Testament. Sarah, Abraham's wife, remember how long she waited for the child of promise? She was beyond childbearing years, and finally she is giving a child of promise who was to continue the line. You fast forward to 1 Samuel. Hannah prayed and prayed and prayed for a child. And finally, a child was given to her who would lead Israel into righteousness. And who can forget about Ruth, the Moabitess in, in Joshua, right? The Moabitess, the people who were supposed to be wiped out. But she trusted the Lord and God in his grace uh, um, um, gave her a child who was included into the line of the offspring. And then the, the theme is picked up in, in Isaiah chapter number seven. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. And who can forget Paul's words in Galatians chapter number four, in verse number four. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 4, four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born under woman. Now, why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because I think this is the most amazing work of the Lord. Listen to what I'm about. This is so incredibly important. Listen, God does this all the time. Satan thought that he could destroy the human race by going after the woman. And God turns to Satan and says, basically, so your plan is to bring sin and destruction and brutality and death through the woman? Well, I'm gonna bring salvation and life and joy through the woman and through her offspring, and he, Satan, will crush your head. Isn't that, don't we serve an awesome God? And he does that all the time. Remember Joseph's words to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. 
Satan tried to crush Jesus on the cross, and it was God's greatest victory. And over and over and over, you see these great reversals. Satan attempted to rob God of his glory by perverting the image of God and man, and he used woman to do it. And God said to Satan, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use woman to crush your head. And scriptures are replete with these kind of reversals. Joseph, the youngest of Jacob's sons, thrown into slavery, despised, and became the savior of the family. Ruth, the Moabitess, who was of the people who were not to intermarry with Israel, is in the lineage of the Messiah. David, the shepherd boy, the least in his family, fought Goliath, not with weapons of warfare, but, but with the Spirit of God. Listen to what he told Goliath. This is, this is incredible. He says this, so that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not, listen, not with a sword or spear. And let me stop right there. God doesn't save with 401ks, Republicans or Democrats, good jobs or with armies. He doesn't save with sword and spear. And he continues and says, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give it into your hand. Later on, Haman, the Agai guy, remember him? We talked about him already. Plots to kill the line of the Savior. The great reversal is that Haman dies on his own gallows. God loves to reverse the stratagems of the evil one and give us uh, against us and use the very thing that he would use against us for God's own glory and our everlasting good. And our salvation begins with a woman bearing a child, the seed, who ultimately, Apostle Paul says, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So, dear believer, take heart. Satan is going to come after you. But God is going to use those things for your good and for his glory because the battle is his. Amen? What a wonderful blessing that is. Let me give you a last truth today. And that is this, salvation begins with a promise of death and victory. Remember what David said to Goliath? Remember what he said? The Lord doesn't save with a sword and a spear. So if God's going to destroy the serpent, how is he going to do it? Well, he doesn't do it through weapons of warfare. He doesn't do it through overwhelming force. How is God going to have victory over the serpent? The offspring of the woman will get victory over the serpent. How? Through the cost of his own life. God tells Satan, I think we misinterpret this verse a little bit. God tells Satan, you will strike his heel. Okay? Now what we think is that Satan is finally defeated. But back in that day, a snake bite like that was deadly. And so what God is telling Satan is, you will strike his heel. In other words, you're going to kill him. But the killing of him will raise many to life. You see, our salvation begins with a promise of both death and victory. This is a costly victory. The only way that what Adam and Eve have done could be reversed is for the very seed who promised to bear the devastation that they wrought and to bear the curse that they deserve. 
And this is a curse of death and damnation at the very outset. God is saying, I am going to send my son into the world. He is going to gain the victory, and he's going to do it by bearing a curse. My son is going to bear my curse. It is a moving thing that in this passage, he never tells Adam and Eve, I curse you, does he? Never does he tell them that. But the son bears the curse of the father on the cross and in their, in their place and in the place of all, listen to me, and in the place of all who trust on him. And he has to lift his voice up to his own father on that day and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And both the father and the son know the answer to the question, and it comes from the, the, comes from the lips of David, and it is this, ready? Because of sin, because of sin, because of sin, he was forsaken. Not his sin, but our sin and Adam and Eve's sins. So when you, when you think back to this first temptation, what was Satan telling Adam and Eve? Really, he was telling Adam and Eve, there is something better to be found than your God. And it can be found in disobeying him. And that, my friends, is the message of the serpent today. Every time we disobey our God, and we choose our way over his way, whatever that is, we are giving in to the words of Satan who says there's something better than God. You only find it in your disobedience. And so for the history of the world, God has been saving people. Listen, he's been saving people who chose something other than him. Isn't that amazing? You, dear believer, who are saved, you are saved because God came to you even though you were choosing something other than him. You were cherishing something other than him and in his grace he came and he saved you. And God says, I'm going to war for you and I'm sending my son for you and I'm going to visit the curse that you deserve for your rebellion against me and preferring something else other than me over me and I'm gonna visit that curse on him in your place so that as you believe on him, you will receive all the blessings that Jesus Christ deserves and that is why we can say with Paul, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you looked around at this world and realized that every promise of this world is simply a, a mirage? Have you looked around and seen the sin in everyone else and the sin in your own life and realized, God, the depths of my sin are great. I need Jesus Christ. 
Because I know that without Jesus Christ, I have no hope of heaven. And so I'm trusting in what Jesus did in my place. He became the curse for me and was resurrected. I'm dependent upon that finished work of the serpent crusher for my entrance into heaven. Have you done that? And if you have done that, let me ask you a question, dear believer, then. Are you reminding yourself every day that every time you sin, you are choosing something other than not God and distorting his image, and you are belittling the awful price that Jesus paid on the cross? And you are not worshiping him in spirit and truth. And so are you, dear believer, putting sin in his proper place and saying, God, you're greater than my sin. You're more to be desired than my sin. You're more to be desired than anything that I could attain in this world. You are worth it, Lord. That is the beginning of the prophecies of the coming of Jesus into this world. Isn't it wonderful? Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ and him crucified. We thank you for Genesis 3.15. We thank you and praise you for going to war against the serpent for us. We thank you that salvation came through a woman bearing a child of promise. Women down through the history of the Old Testament bearing children who continued that promise. We thank you, Lord, that the war was won through death and victory on the cross and in the resurrection. We have so much to be thankful for. (coughs) Make us, Lord, more like Jesus Christ. May we glory and exalt in what Jesus has done, that you, the curse that should have been us, you placed upon your own son. If we don't remember anything else today, help us, Lord. Nail that down in our minds so that our hearts will praise and honor and glorify you and our hearts will be true to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.